The following program is for informational purposes only. Do not make any investment without speaking to a licensed financial advisor. It's time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends. How are you? And welcome to today's edition of the financial physician, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner and your money doctor. Each and every week, we upload our show Sunday morning, 7 a.m., and many of you do spend Sunday mornings with me, and I really do appreciate that. So thanks for taking time out of your week whenever you're listening to our program. Now, usually on the show, um, it's kind of a daunting task to do this program. Uh, when I was uh, on the radio, it was kind of easy. You know, you just show up, the light goes on, you do two hours worth of radio, you go home. But producing the podcast is totally different. Uh, I got to be the sound engineer. I got to do editing. I got to do uh, mastering of, of volumes, and uh, I got to do audio clips. And it just is uh, a daunting task. And I don't want to say I dread doing it. I enjoy doing it, uh, but it's 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 a big project each and every week to bring you two hours. I don't have any guests. It's just me and you. Uh, and I want to make it entertaining. I want to make it informative. I want to make it fresh. Uh, and it is a daunting task, and I kind of, I'm a procrastinator by nature, and I keep thinking about it, thinking about it, oh, I gotta get started, I gotta do it, but I gotta tell you, this week, I'm chomping at the bit to get going. I can't wait, I couldn't wait anyway, to, to start recording today's program, because there's so much to talk about. We got, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, uh, this week was not a good week for Joe Biden, um, he's done, I've told you many times on his program, probably for a year that he was not going to be the nominee. Now I'm 100% sure uh, after uh, the special counsel came out with a damning, damning report on the mental health uh, of Joe Biden. Uh, we're going to play some of the mainstream media melting down over this uh, and trying to uh, uh, have his back. Uh, it's going to be pretty difficult. Uh, this week, the Supreme Court uh, held arguments regarding Trump being on a ballot in Colorado. It didn't go good for the anti-Trump people. Uh, we're going to dive into that. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, the surveillance state. We're going to spend some time talking about how much we're being surveilled. Big Brother is watching us each and every day. We are on camera over 200 times a day. We're going to get into that deeply. We have uh, Tucker Carlson interviewing Vladimir Putin for two hours. Uh, what an incredible interview. We're going to play parts of that later in the show. Of course, the mainstream media thinks that Tucker Carlson should be arrested for Espionage Act uh, for talking to Putin. Just unbelievable. Uh, the border bill failed in the Senate, thankfully. Uh, this wasn't a border bill at all. It was just a, uh, an amnesty bill. It was just giving more money to uh, process these people coming through, give them more money, more phones, more food, more health care. 
We see um, retailers are fleeing cities uh, because of crime. There's so much to talk about on today's Financial Physician Podcast, so buckle up. Here we go. Now, it's a well-documented fact, and I've seen it uh, quite often in my practice, that very few people do proper estate planning. And many people don't even know what estate planning is. Well, in the simplest terms, it's where, where is your money going to go when you pass? This is something that you want to direct. You don't want a court to decide that. So you have a will. You have a last will and testament. That's one vehicle to uh, use to pass on assets. But there's other things you can do. And that is called trusts. And I get questions about trust all the time. Lou, what is a trust? Do I need a trust? Should I get a trust? An attorney told me I should have a trust. Let me explain what trusts are. Now, first of all, I'm going to tell you, I don't think most people need a trust. All right? Many lawyers are out there. They're doing free lunch seminars or free dinners, and they scare you into thinking that it's going to be difficult to probate your estate, uh, and it's really not. Now, I will preface this by saying it depends where you live. Certain states are more difficult than other states to, to settle in the state. Notoriously, Florida is a bad state. Uh, where I live in New Jersey, it's a pretty easy state to probate a will and to settle in the state. So it all depends on where you are. In some states, trusts do really uh, help you settle the estate easier uh, than if you didn't have it. So what is a trust? A trust is an agreement between two parties, the settler and the trustee. Actually, there's three parties involved, the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiary. Well, what's the difference? The settler is the one who puts the money or the asset in the trust. The trustee is the one who's named to manage that trust, to invest the money, to settle the trust when you die. And the beneficiary is the one who ultimately gets the assets in the trust. And there's different kinds of trust. Let's talk about the most common, the living trust. Now, there's two different types of trust you have to be aware of. Revocable trust, where you could change the terms of the trust, and irrevocable trust, where it's carved in stone after you do it, and it's very difficult to make any changes to it. And I'll talk about uh, the pitfalls of irrevocable trust in, in, in a minute. So the revocable living trust is the most common one, and what you do is you, uh, you set it up with an attorney. You put your assets in the trust, your CDs. You could put your house. You could put your investments in there. And you're usually the trustee. So you are the settler of trust, and you are the trustee of the trust. And typically, your children may be the beneficiaries of that trust. Now, you could revoke it at any time. You could just shut it down altogether and just not have it. So what's the advantage of the revocable living trust? Well, there's not too many advantages to it. First advantage is you bypass the will, and you bypass probate. Now, let's talk about what probate is. Uh, it's a fancy term for walking into a courthouse in your county with a will and a death certificate and walking out of there with a, a, a certificate that names you the executor. So the executor is the one who probates the estate. And that's all probate is. It's walking into a courthouse and walking out with a document. I've done that many times. I've been executors of, of many wills. Uh, and uh, it's an easy process where I live. Again, this is a location issue. Uh it was a 15 or 20-minute process. I walked into the courthouse. Uh, it's actually down the block from my office in Tom's River. Uh, and I walked out with a document naming me the executor. Now, I go and uh, I could settle the estate. I could sell the investments. I could sell the home. And then what I do is I distribute those assets based on what the will says. Now, first of all, I have to settle all the liabilities of the estate. 
which could be uh, you know taxes, it could be medical bills, it could be debts that 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 the seat the decedent has. Right, I got to settle all those things before I start giving money to people, because I'm the one who's responsible for that. So I I am the executor. I sell the assets and I distribute them. Usually a pretty easy process, unless there's businesses involved or more complicated real estate. Uh, and it's pretty easy to settle in the state, at least here in New Jersey. So what the Revocable Liberty Trust does, it bypasses the probate process. The trustee, when you die, the trustee just takes the assets and gives them to the beneficiaries of the trust. Now, an irrevocable trust, on the other hand, can't change anything. It is uh, carved in stone, and I'll tell you when we'll use that in a second. Now, why would I use a trust? Well, privacy. Some people say, I don't want anybody to read my will. Like, that's a big deal. Do you know that a will is a public document? Uh, If you go on the website of the surrogate court, the surrogate court is the court that's responsible for probate. You could read almost anybody's will. (laughs) Uh, Get a life. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Curiosity, I guess. Uh, But you can. And some people don't want anybody knowing what their assets were uh, and what they're going to do with them. Uh, so it bypasses that that privacy issue right? and the probate issue. Now, again, a lot of attorneys charge a lot of money to set up these trusts, and then you have to do something. You have to actually put the assets in the trust, and many people don't even get around to doing that. So I'm not a big fan of revocable living trusts. I think it's just a way for lawyers to make money, uh, and in most states, we don't need it. But there's certain trusts that are really, really important. Let's talk about, um, say you have a special needs child, and you don't want them inheriting money because, A, they can't manage it, number one, but number two, maybe they're getting benefits. Maybe they're on Medicaid, and if they inherit money, they're going to be thrown off the program. So instead of naming them the beneficiary in your will, you set up what's called a testamentary trust. Here's another word we've got to talk about. Testamentary means that the trust is not in effect until you die. And in a testamentary trust, that trust document is in your will. It says that at my death, my money is going to go into this trust for this beneficiary. And I'm going to name this person as the trustee to run it. And these are the terms of the trust. This is how I want the money to go out of the trust. And you could dictate the terms of that. And that's real important because you could decide how much money your beneficiary gets. Now, in a special needs situation, uh, the trustee will give little bits of money at a time for the benefit of the beneficiary Uh, because you don't want them to go afoul of the of the income or the asset rules that'll get them kicked out of their benefits but say you have a uh, you have three children and one of those children are bad with money or that child and when i'm say child i don't mean minor i mean you could be 50 60 years old uh but you're next of kin uh say they are uh, a gambler Uh, They have problems with drugs, alcohol. They're not good with money. They'll blow it. Uh, You could set up a trust where their inheritance goes into that trust and you name one of their siblings as the trustee and you say, well, this child can get $10,000 a year from the trust and a trustee will distribute that $10,000. Now, you could also put a stipulation in it that – At age 40, he gets 50% of the trust, and at age 50, he gets the rest of the trust. So that you have control. Even after you die, you can control how assets get to your beneficiaries. Now, 
if you're the child that, that whose money goes into a trust and the other siblings get all their money at once, you're not going to feel too good about it. But what your parent is doing is trying to protect you from yourself. Now, also, there's, you could put a um, stipulation in a trust where the trustee has leeway to uh, distribute assets based on what he thinks or she thinks is proper for the beneficiary. So say um, uh, one of your children was, was a drug addict. And 10 years later, he's been clean, he's married, he has a kid, he's on a straight and narrow now. Well, the trustee could say, you know what, here's the rest of the money in the trust. Uh, uh, I deem you uh, uh, able to handle this money, and I'm going to release it to you. And I always tell people when they're setting up a trust, give the trustee discretion. Now, that could be a problem. I'll tell you why. Because once the beneficiary knows that their brother can give them more than the annual stipulation of the trust at his discretion, that person's going to badger their brother. It also may cause bad blood between them. And I've seen this many, many times. Uh, so you got to be aware of that. And you got to be aware of the family dynamics, the family relationship that'll be there. Now, this kind of trust where you're trying to protect one of your children against themselves, uh, I, I call it a spendthrift trust. Uh, it's called a number of things, but that's basically what it is. You're protecting that person from blowing that money uh, away. What else would you use the trust for? Um, say uh, you're concerned about going into a nursing home. That comes up on the first meeting every time I see a client that's at retirement age. Lou, how do I protect myself and my assets? I, I had an uncle, all his money went to a, a nursing home. Let's face it, a nursing home, in New Jersey here is like $12,000 a year. And nobody's going to pay for it but you. Now, yeah, if you have long-term care insurance, you'll get some coverage there. But most people don't have that. So when you go into a nursing home at the end of your life, you may be blown $12,000 a month for a year, two years. If you have dementia, maybe you're there five years. And you can see an entire state just melt away. So how do you protect yourself against that? Well, one way to do it is to put most, much of your assets or most of your assets into a trust, an irrevocable trust with somebody else as the trustee. Now, once you do this, you cannot unravel it, right? That money is gone from your life for good. The trustee manages the money, and then when you pass away, that money is given to the beneficiaries. Now, if five years go by, at least that's the rule here in New Jersey, and that money's been in the trust five years, it is not available for nursing home costs, and you will qualify for Medicaid, uh, which is state welfare, basically, uh, because you don't have any assets. If uh, less than uh, five years have gone by, uh, that trust now is at risk of having to be liquidated by the trustee and used to pay for nursing home care. So that's a very, very good use of a trust. Now, you can get around that um, by just putting your assets uh, in your children's name. And if you wait five years, it, it has the same effect. Uh, many times I'll uh, put uh, the primary residence in the children's name. Uh, and if five years go by, you know at least the house uh, is part of your estate and it won't be eaten up in nursing home care. Uh, if you're a single person and you didn't do that or didn't put it in a trust, and you go into a nursing home, you'll have to liquidate the house and use it for nursing home costs. Uh, now, why would people use a trust instead of putting it in their kids' names? Uh, there's lots of different reasons. Uh, maybe they're concerned that their children uh, have credit problems. 
uh, or uh, uh, have marital problems or um, may misuse the money. Uh, so that's a concern, especially if you're giving cash investments and stuff like that into the trust. Now, with real estate, um, you could give it to the kids, put them on a deed, and you have something called a life estate. A life estate means that nobody could sell that house until you die. You get to live there for the rest of your life. Uh, so that's a good thing. Why would I put my house in some of my kids' names? Again, this is at the end of your life. You don't do this when you're 60. You know, you do it when you're getting old, you're getting decrepit, you see nursing home care or long-term care uh, in your future, and it's five years out, uh, gifting the house to the children makes a lot of sense because it doesn't change your life at all. You sleep in the same bed, you eat in uh, the same table, kitchen table, you walk through the same door, uh, nothing changes in your life. But if you take a $100,000 CD and put it in your kid's name to start that five-year look-back period, uh, then you're at risk that they may have a landmine. What if they get into a car accident and kill somebody? The lawyers find out that your son has deep pockets, right? Uh, because the money's in their name. It's not your money anymore. Once you give it to your kids, it's their name. It's their money legally. Even though they know it's your money and they're just holding it to protect it, uh, it could be subject to a lawsuit. Or if they get divorced, it could be part of a divorce settlement. Now, people tell me, well, a gift from my parent is not a marital asset. That's true. But judges all the time look at fairness and say, well, you got all this money. Give that, the house can go to your, to your spouse. Uh, and if they have credit problems, uh, they can't go bankrupt. They can't be delinquent because they have assets to use to pay off their debt. So you, you have to look at all these different things. And also, they're going to be responsible for income taxes on uh, the growth or the dividends or interest that that money earns. So there's benefits to trusts. Uh, I don't think most people need them unless they are um, uh, have a special needs child or has a child that they don't want to inherit a lot of money um, or they want to use it for protection from nursing home costs, then a trust makes sense. But trusts are costly, and you got to understand that many trusts have a lot of uh, handcuffs on you, especially the irrevocable trust that you cannot undo once you started. Now, I have a client of mine, a single woman, um, about 70 years old. Uh, a lawyer uh, talked her into putting her house into an irrevocable trust. Uh, that was her only asset. Uh, she wanted to move and sell the house, uh, but it was in a trust. She couldn't sell the house. The trustee had to be the one to sell the house. Then, if she was to buy a new house... She couldn't use any of those assets for furniture or anything else. The trustee had to buy the new house. Now, the trustee will pay the real estate taxes, could pay the utilities on that house. That's one way to get a benefit from it. But she can never utilize that money for anything because it's irrevocable uh, trust that that house was in. So there's drawbacks to that. And be aware that lawyers many times will talk you in to a trust. They make a lot of money on these trusts could cost $5,000 or more. Right, uh, They make a lot of money, so be careful and get a second opinion before you get a trust. Trusts could be very good, very good tools for estate planning, or they could be very bad. And that's why you have to make sure you understand trust before you get into one. Let's talk about some of the mistakes that people make estate planning, and it happens all the time. People make the worst financial mistakes in their life at the end of their life. I see it all the time in my practice, and 
we try to advise our clients in a way that they could avoid these mistakes that they make. The first one is to understand what the will uh, affects and what it doesn't. The will only affects the residual estate. What is the residual estate? The residual estate is assets that you have that don't transfer by title or by beneficiary. Let's talk about title first. And this is where people make a big mistake, right? You're at the end of your life, so you have three children, you have a big bank account, and you put your son's name on the checking account or the savings account or the CD. Because it would be easier because he can take care of business for you. He can go to the bank. He can sign the checks uh, because he's the co-owner of the account. But that's the key. He's the co-owner of the account, meaning that when you die, it becomes his money because of rights of survivorship. And that's the thing. You could have your will stay. My assets are split evenly amongst my three children. But by putting your child on that bank account, you've disinherited your children. Because those funds will move to the survivor regardless of what your, your will uh, says. Now, on this program, I've mentioned this many times. This happened 20 years ago. Uh, but it's one of the biggest mistakes uh, that I've ever seen. A woman comes to me. She's in her mid-30s. Her mother had just died, and she wanted assistance in settling the estate. Uh, so her and her husband come to my office. I sit down with them. I said, let me read the will. And the will said that my assets are split evenly between my two children. Okay. Well, what's the assets? She goes, well, it's a million-dollar Merrill Lynch brokerage account and a $300,000 home. Okay. Let me look at the, you got a statement for the brokerage account? She hands me the statement, and lo and behold, her name is on it with her mother. And also, her mother put her on the deed to the house. So now the son has been totally disinherited. So I told her, I said, this is all your money uh, by law. Now, that wasn't mom's intentions. Mom's intentions were her son to get half the estate. But by law, it's all hers. And there's nothing the son can do about it legally. Now, if he could prove that she somehow coerced the mother to do this or the mother wasn't in her right mind at the time, uh, maybe there'd be some success at that, at that point. But by law, it's her money. Now, she could do the right thing and she could you know, give him half. That has some complexities in it as well, but you know, tax-wise and gift taxes and stuff like that. Uh, but she could do that if she wants. Um, but, uh, that was a big mistake. So that's one thing you have to understand what assets transfer by title or beneficiary. So if you have a retirement plan, an IRA account, an annuity, a life insurance policy, every one of those assets has a beneficiary. So no matter what your will says, it's going to go to the beneficiary. So make sure non-probatable assets, that's called a non-probatable asset because you only probate assets that don't transfer by beneficiary or title. And it's called your residual estate. Your residual estate is everything else. So if everything's titled, and, and you know, smart estate planning uh, to title things or use something like transfer on death. Uh, what's a transfer on death, Lou? Well, a transfer on death is you just go to the bank or you go to your broker and you say, uh, I want this to go to my son when I die. And I don't want him to have to probate the will. I just want it to become his. I want it to be easy. Well, we could put a transfer on death on it. You sign a form saying, at my death, uh, this goes to my son. So your son walks in with a death certificate, 
after you die, and we just put it in his name. No need to probate the will. No need to, to uh, have it go through an estate account. It goes directly to him. So you could set up all your accounts to be transferred on death or payable on death, POD, TOD. It's the same thing. And you could put multiple people on there. You could say, yeah, I want my three children transfer on death, and each one of them will get a third of it. So that's a good way to do estate planning to make it less complicated. Uh, I just put together an estate plan for one of my clients where the will is very, very um, inconsequential uh, because everything is either beneficiary, jointly titled, or transfer on death. All those assets bypass the will. The only thing the will is necessary for is to sell the car or do small things like that, you know, personal belongings and whatnot. So that's another good thing to do. But you have to understand what the residual estate is and what it's not. So this is one of the big mistakes people make in estate planning. And make sure you understand. And you want to do this way in advance. You don't want to do it when your health is declining. That's why people make big mistakes at the end of their life. Because uh, they're doing things when they're not at their peak. Either physically or mentally. Uh, they take advice from their neighbor or their Uncle Joe. And uh, you know they, they do something stupid. So it's a very important to get good financial advice from a, an estate attorney or a good certified financial planner uh, to make sure that your estate is set up the right way and that you understand exactly what's going to happen when you die. Another mistake people make uh, estate planning is naming uh, co-executors. I hate that uh, because now you have conflict. You have two people that have to make a decision. Uh, right now I'm co-executor on a, a pretty significant estate, uh, and me and the other executor are going to bang heads on everything, right? Say, I believe that the house should be sold at 400,000. That's what, you know, the market is, but he wants to hold out for 500,000, right? Uh, so now we're going to have to, uh, work this out or we're going to have to go to the court to figure it out. Also inconvenience, uh, to have two, two executors both have to sign off on everything, on the estate account, uh, uh, on the tax return, uh, it just complicates things. Same is true of power of attorney, which is another part of estate planning. Power of attorney allows somebody else to make financial transactions for you when you cannot do it yourself or are not willing to do it yourself. People will name two people power of attorney. Every check has to be signed by both of your children. Maybe their distance is apart. You know, maybe it's not easy to get together and do this. Name one executor, name one power of attorney. Also, when you do your living will, which is the third stool, the third leg of the stool of estate planning, it's the last will and testament. It is the power of attorney, and it is the living will or a health care directive. Will you name a power of attorney to make important decisions at the end of your life, like to take you off life support, uh, like to give you or not give you a feeding tube, uh, if you have more than one person as your healthcare power of attorney, what if I want to pull the plug, but my brother doesn't? Now we have a big conflict. So this is a big mistake people make uh, doing their estate planning, uh, thinking that, well, I don't, want to, um, I don't want to slight one of my children. I have two children. I want them both to be executors because I don't want one to feel that uh, I'm not treating them fairly. And people think sometimes that being an executor gives you a lot of power. Uh, or gives you more money, the ability to, to get more money. Yeah, you could charge an executor fee, but most families don't charge that against their other fam their, their siblings. Uh, and you can't give yourself more money than the will says. 
the executor is legally bound to whatever the will says. So it's not like, you know, you're going to feel slighted because you're not named executor. As a matter of fact, you should feel good about it uh, because being an executor is a pain in the ass. It really is, uh, especially if you have compound, uh, 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 complicated estates or businesses that have to be liquidated and real estate that has to be sold. I had a client uh, who, who was named uh, executor of his uncle. And the guy had all kinds of stocks and everything else. And we're trying to settle this estate. He's in my conference room and he's, he's shaking his fist to the sky. Why did you do this to me? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of aggravation. It's a lot of running around. And then you got to take the calls from the beneficiary. Where's my money? And uh, many times it's not your brother who's pushing you for the money. It's your sister-in-law. <laughs> I say in my book, uh, in-laws can be outlaws uh, when it comes to estate settlement. Uh, and everybody wants their money quick, but you're the one who's responsible for sat uh, satisfying all the liabilities of the estate, making sure the taxes are paid. You may have an inheritance tax in certain states like New Jersey that has to be satisfied. Uh, maybe some bills are going to come in for, for medical expenses. So you don't want to start distributing the estate until you know that all the liabilities are covered because you're responsible for them. Now, if it's a large estate, you could do a partial distribution and leave back, you know, $20,000 in the estate and then make sure everything is settled and then distribute the balance. That's fine. Also, a mistake people make in estate planning is naming the wrong executor. Don't name your child who has no financial experience with securities or anything like that. Name the person who's most capable of settling the estate efficiently. Uh, again, people name, I'm going to name my daughter because she lives close to me. When meanwhile, your son is, uh, uh, you know, a lawyer, uh, but lives uh, in Oklahoma. It doesn't really matter. Uh, that Oklahoma uh, executor could take care of business from there, or he could fly in for a weekend and, and, and do what he has to do, but at least he knows what he is doing. Now, if you don't have anybody capable uh, in your family uh, to be your executor, and many people don't, uh, then you want to name a professional executor. I'm an executor for a number of my clients uh, because they don't want to burden their family with it, or they just don't think they're capable of doing it. Uh, so there is professional executors. It could be your attorney. Uh, it could be a, a trust company. You can name virtually any entity uh, to be your executor. So again, trust, estate planning, uh, making sure your assets are titled properly, that your beneficiaries are, are, are proper, and that everything is going to happen the way you want it to at the end of your life. And so few people actually do the proper estate, estate planning. And this is not something you want to do on your own. Get yourself a competent certified financial planner or elder or estate attorney uh, to assist you in this. That will be money well spent. All right, let's take a quick break. My name's Lou Scatigna. You're listening to the Financial Physician Podcast. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate 
state from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Registered advisory services through Fortitude Advisory Group. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Hey, it's that time again, income tax season. There has been many changes to tax rules the last few years. Some deductions have been eliminated and some have been expanded. Avoid IRS headaches by putting my 35 years tax preparation experience to work for you. I guarantee that your return will be accurate and in most cases will be prepared and ready for you in less than three business days. This season, I'm taking on a limited number of new tax clients. Call for an appointment today and receive a $100 discount off our already reasonable fee. Tax season does not have to be stressful anymore. Call and lock up your appointment at our downtown Tom's River office by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Is there a financial issue I could help you with, a problem you have that uh, you think I may be able to steer you in the right direction, or if you want me to cover a topic on this program or a question you want me to uh, delve into here on The Financial Physician, just send me an email, lou, L-O-U, at thefinancialphysician.com. That's lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I love your emails. I get a lot of emails from you guys, uh, mostly good ones, the occasional bad one. But uh, mostly good. Also, thanks for uh, sharing a link to the podcast with friends and family. That's the only way the podcast grows if uh, someone who listens tells somebody else about it. So uh, appreciate you doing that. The numbers are going up each and every week, meaning that you guys are telling your friends about the program. Also, visit my uh, Rumble channel. You can go to thefinancialphysician.com, go to the blog. Uh, I put up videos every week. Uh, uh, Usually it's the opening uh, topic, the financial topic of the day. Today we opened a program talking about trusts. So I videotaped that. I have a pretty cool home video studio, and uh, we have it on uh, the Financial Physician blog, uh, and that links you to my Rumble channel. The Rumble channel is uh, just look up the Financial Physician, and we have all the videos of all the topics that we open the show with. So a lot of people send me emails, Lou, three, four weeks ago, you were talking about this. Could you tell me again, you know, uh, about this, this topic? Um, you could just go to the, um, the Rumble channel and watch the video of that topic. Uh, and right now we probably have, I don't know, 40, 40 videos there. Uh, so make sure you uh, go to the Rumble, look up the financial physician, Become a, a follower, a subscriber, uh, and uh, we'll let you know anytime uh, we update the video. And usually um, my uh, web guy and my video editor, uh, he usually has it up around Thursday, sometimes Friday following the program. But it's really there for long-term use so people can come by. Someone's doing a search on a certain topic. Uh, and we've had a, a lot of downloads of some of the, the shows we've done in the past. So that's uh, Rumble. 
uh, or just go to thefinancialphysician.com, go to the blog, and you'll see videos. You can link yourself over to Rumble right from there. All right, uh, another indicator uh, that Bidenomics is not working for the average American. It was announced last week that credit card debt just hit a new high. It seems that every month we're hitting a new high in credit cards. You know, balances on the average credit card balance uh, in America is up 10% from a year ago. So where Americans should be paying down their debt, they're not. They're increasing it. And what is um, the average balance uh, per customer, per consumer? $6,360. Also a record high. And I think now we're at $1.1 trillion in credit card debt. The average interest rate, uh, an all-time high, uh, almost 21%. Uh, another indicator that things aren't good for middle America and low-income Americans, uh, delinquencies are up 50%. Uh, we're up 50% in 2023. And serious delinquencies, those that are 90 days or more past due, reached the highest level since 2009. Well, what was 2009? That was the, the great financial crisis, right? Uh, so things are not so good in the U.S. economy. The Biden administration wants you to believe that it is, but it's not. And now also we have the highest amount of Americans that are making the minimal payment on their credit card balance. At 20%, if you make minimum payments, it's going to take you 17 years to pay off the debt. So if you had a 6300 the average balance that Americans have, and you made the minimum payment, it'll take 17 years to pay it off, and it's going to cost you more than $9,000 in interest, 150% of the original balance. And consumers still turn to credit cards because it's the, the easiest debt to get. In just the last quarter of 2023 alone, 20.1 million new credit card accounts were opened in three months at the end of 2023. And um, we're seeing um, subprime borrowers looking for uh, additional credit. They're making applications like crazy. Um, what's subprime? Subprime is um, those who have a credit score of 600 or below. And many people in this group are millennials, young people, young adults. You know, they're burdened with a high level of student loan debt. They have a housing affordability issue, whether it's buying a home or, or, or rent. Uh, and many Americans, uh, due to inflation as well, um, they're, um, they're turning to credit cards. It's the only way uh, uh, an average middle-class American or low-income family could pay the bills. Put food on a table. Put gas in the car. So this is a very, very disturbing fact. I watch credit card balance debt all the time. I think it's a big indicator of the economy in general and what's happening to the middle class, which is disappearing very quickly in this country. And those of you who have credit card debt, you know how burdensome that can be. In the Financial Physician book, I call credit card debt cancer to the financial body. And it is. It's the absolute worst debt anybody could have. But still, 20 million credit cards were issued 
in the fourth quarter of 2023 alone. Balances have hit record highs. Interest rates have hit record highs. Delinquencies are up 50% last year. So it's a, it's a pretty sad state of affairs for the average American family right now that they have to use uh, what are basically loan shark interest rates uh, just to get by. And uh, the Washington Post wants voters to believe that uh, grocery stores, not President Joe Biden's inflationary policies, are to blame for um, America's, Americans' concerns about high food prices. It's not, not, not Biden's fault. It's grocery stores. Uh, this is ridiculous. Grocery stores are not raising prices because they're just trying to sock it to the consumer. It's that their cost to buy these goods, this food, this beef, these eggs, this sugar, has gone up by the manufacturers of these products. And they, they're not going to eat the, They have to pass it along to you. Um, but again, you know, the liberal media always has Joe's back. We'll see if that changes now that it's pretty obvious to everybody that he's not going to be the nominee, uh, which we're going to delve into in the second hour. Um, but uh, once they know he's not going to be the nominee for sure, uh, they're going to drop him like a hot potato. You watch. You watch how the, the press turns on him. Uh, so we have uh, reasons for food inflation. Supply chain disruptions, uh, droughts, avian flu affecting the egg and poultry industry, uh, and the demand for food. Meat, nuts, produce has remained elevated as Americans splurge on, on high-quality specialty goods and organic items. Um, households are generally allocating more of their budget towards groceries now. So... Uh, uh, the left-wing Washington Post wants to, uh, grocery stores to lower prices. Uh, yeah, then they'll go out of business and we'll have no food available to us. Yeah, and Biden was out there saying, was it last week or the week before, blaming grocery stores for high prices. I tell you, this president, this administration takes no account for anything that happens. They're never to blame. Now, you watch... Uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, when she's asked any of these questions about things that the Biden administration are failing on, whether it's the border, inflation, the economy, they just don't acknowledge it. It's always somebody else's fault. Or they just ignore it and say, no, that's not happening. The border's secure. (laughs) When you turn on the TV and all you see is thousands of people coming across uh, the border. But they die right to your face. They gaslight you. And you're supposed to believe it. Unbelievable. A new study on women and money shows that 49% of women consider themselves the chief financial officer of their household. And 43% of women are the main breadwinner. Boy, what a change in 30 years, huh? Uh, I think this is a good development. I really do. I think women are much better at budgeting and managing money than men are. Sorry, men. Some of you may be good at it, but I think women are better. And I can see it in my practice. I could tell, I could tell within three minutes 
who's in charge of the budget, who's in charge of the money and investments and everything else between a husband and wife. It's very easy for me to, to determine who's in charge financially. Up until 1974, married women needed their husband's permission to open a bank account, apply for a credit card, or sign up for a mortgage. If you were a single woman, you had to find a male cosigner. I wasn't aware of that. Were you? That changed with the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which was signed into law in 1974, which is only 50 years ago. So I never remembered that, that women couldn't open up a credit card without a male cosigner. Wow. So Alliance did this survey, and this is what they came up with. 49% of women consider themselves the chief financial officer of their household, up from 41% in 2021. 43% of women say they are the primary breadwinner in the family, up from 34% in 2021. That's a pretty big increase in just, what, two years? From 34% to 43% of women being the main breadwinner? Uh, At this pace, it's going to be a majority by the end of this year. 51% of women say they are more financially savvy than their spouse or partner, up from 46% in 2021. However, women still feel less secure financially than they did in the past. And many women are uneasy about their retirement plans. So this is a study that was done in 2023, looked at 900 women, aged 25 to 75, with annual household incomes of 30000 or more. And it showed that women are taking on more financial responsibility by making financial decisions for their household and managing the family's money. So uh, interesting turn of events uh, for family financial planning. Now, as many of you know, and anybody who's read my book, uh, I devote a whole chapter to the importance of spousal teamwork, that both spouses should be involved in bill paying, in managing the investments, making decisions for the future. But still, most families, one spouse handles the money issues, which is never any good, never any good. And, uh, but, you know, one good development, like I said now, is that women are uh, being more involved in finances, and in many cases, uh, they're driving the financial car. But that may put a lot more stress on women, because when you're responsible for the bills, uh, you're the one who has to stress out, having, having enough money to pay them. You worry about the investments, obviously. Now, I remember my dad. You know, we, I don't come from money. Our family always stressed financially. Uh, growing up, and uh, my dad was starting to get sick over finances, so he turned it all over to my mother, and every week he would give her a certain amount of money to pay the bills and buy the groceries and all that stuff, and after he did that, he transferred all the stress from himself (laughs) to my mother. He was a happy-go-lucky guy. He never worried about it again. I'm sure he had some worries about the family finances, but he didn't have that week-to-week, day-to-day concern. He transferred it to my mother. So maybe, maybe the reason why women are, are, are more involved in finances is because men saying, you know, I don't want this stress anymore. Let me give it to you. Uh, good move, guys. February 1st was unclaimed property day. <laughs> what is that? Well, one in seven Americans have unclaimed money or financial assets. Uh, and there's a way you could find that out and there's a way you could reclaim them. This is called a sheeted property. 
And this is what happens. Uh, if you have a, say, you have a bank account and you don't do anything with it for three years, uh, that money will go to the, uh, the state that you live in as abandoned property. And uh, many times we don't even know about it. Uh, you know, maybe you had a, a bank account in New York when you were growing up, little for you were a kid, and your grandmother set it up for you and put money in there on your birthday. And you totally forgot about it. You moved out of state, and that money's been sitting there compounding <laughs> uh, in an account, but it's not there because what happened is after a while, uh, the state of New York took that money as unclaimed property and used it for themselves. Actually, I stand corrected. Uh, it's changed. Um, according to this article I'm reading, um, unclaimed property refers to accounts within financial institutions or companies in which there has been no activity generated or contact with the owner regarding the property for one year or longer, according to the National Association of Unclaimed Property Administrators. By law, such properties are turned over to the state. For instance, an individual may have rented a property in Texas by putting up a security deposit. If the person moves to New York and fails to collect back the deposit after a set dormancy period, the money becomes an unclaimed property and goes to the state. 48 million Americans, one in seven, have unclaimed property. Are you one of those one in seven? And it's not a little bit of money. More than $5 billion worth of unclaimed properties return to states annually. This includes bank accounts, safe deposit boxes, uh, utility security deposits, stocks, Uncashed dividends, refunds, traveler's checks, uh, CDs, unredeemed gift certificates or money orders, uh, life insurance policies, uncashed payroll checks. Uh, so that's a big deal. Now, each state has its own database uh, where you could put your name in and some information about yourself, and you'll get an email telling you whether you have any assets that are claimed by the state and how to get it back. And uh, almost all, 95% of all unclaimed property claims are, are filed online. You know what the average claim is? $2,080. <laughs> That's not a little bit of money. And it's easy to find your state's website. Just, just Google unclaimed property, New Jersey, if you live in New Jersey, uh, and they'll bring you right to the website. And uh, I went through this process. I, I, you know, they ask for your name, your previous address, your current address, your social security number, your birth date, all that fine information you have to give them. Uh, but it's a state website, so I'm sure it's pretty secure. I mean, you file your taxes, don't you? Uh, so uh, I did it. Uh, they sent me a confirmation email that they received my information, uh, and they will be contacting me to let me know whether or not I have any unclaimed property anywhere that's been returned to the state. So uh, there's billions and billions of dollars. The average amount, 2080 bucks. One in seven people listen to me now uh, have unclaimed property. And if the average is over $2,000, uh, as soon as you listen to the rest of this radio program, uh, I would go to your state's unclaimed property website, uh, put your information in. Uh, you, you know, you can't, can't lose anything by doing it. Uh, at least you'll know uh, that you don't have any unclaimed property. And I bet you a lot of people find that they have, the average is 2000 but maybe it's 5000 or 10000 who knows? Uh, especially it's been a long time. Uh, it's money in a bank earning interest. Uh, 
or a, a small, a few shares of a mutual fund or something where they can't get in touch with you. Another way to prevent this from happening, though, is make sure you do some transaction. If you have a, a banking account or something like that, uh, make a deposit or withdrawal uh, from your savings account. Now, our checking account we use regularly, so it's going to be rare for a checking account to be sheeted to the state. Uh, but what if you have a savings account with a little bit of money in it and you haven't done anything uh, in a year or two? Uh, that could be considered abandoned. I thought it was three years. It used to be three years. Uh, I don't know when they changed it to one year or longer. Uh, I don't know if uh, it varies by state how long it would be before they would uh, consider it abandoned. But again, you have nothing to lose. Uh, if you do have accounts, make sure they're up to date with, with addresses and all that and make sure that uh, that institution knows you're alive by doing a transaction or, or contacting them. You know, even if you don't want to do a transaction, just go to your bank and say, look, uh, I know that uh, I have to notify you that I'm still alive on this account, otherwise it's abandoned. And I want to let you know that I did not abandon my property. One of my favorite uh, financial websites is the Economic Collapse Blog. The Economic Collapse Blog.com. Michael Snyder is the author of the of blog. Uh, he has really good uh, articles on his website that he writes, and he's really good with statistics. He likes to list a number of certain things. And he had an uh, article out this week. It, was entitled 12 Absolutely Insane Examples That Showed Just How Far the U.S. Has Fallen. And he writes, When I was young, I often wondered what it must be like to live during the fall of the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, now I have a pretty good idea. Just like the Roman Empire, the United States is falling. Every day our decline gets even more pronounced, and you can see evidence of this all around us. Virtually all of our major institutions are crumbling, and virtually all or most of our critical systems are failing. We tend to blame our problems on our politicians, but the truth is that the rot that is rapidly spreading throughout our society runs a lot deeper than that. Millions upon millions of us have completely rejected the values that this nation was founded upon, and so now we have a giant mess on our hands. So here's his 12 absolutely insane examples of how the U.S. has fallen. Number one, the social, a social media influencer that returned a couch to Costco after using it for more than two years is telling her followers to buy all the furniture from Costco because you can return it when you don't like it anymore. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Bringing back a furniture after having it for two years plus, and Costco will take it back? She goes on to say, they have an awesome return policy. Buy your furniture from Costco, girl. You can return it when you don't like it anymore. Number two, the U.S. Navy is having a real difficult time recruiting young people. And so they have decided that a radical new approach is needed. From now on, a high school diploma will no longer be necessary. So basically, uh, the quality of the people going into the military is falling. We have that transgender policy, their, their, their DEI policy, and now they've uh, lowered uh, the educational threshold. Uh, to join the Navy. Number three, three years ago, the city of Portland decriminalized the possession of all drugs. Let's check in and see how it's working out. Oregon leaders have declared a 90-day state of emergency in Portland to battle the city's debilitating fentanyl crisis three years after decriminalizing possession of all drugs. Um, ridiculous. Uh, number four, Western Oregon University has found a way to keep students from failing. 
D minus and F grades will no longer be earned by anyone because they are being abolished. Citing wrong-headed GPA fixation, Western Oregon University leaders have announced plans to abolish D minus and F grades. They will replace them with no credit in an effort to support student success and encourage struggling undergrads to continue their education despite obstacles, they said. Beautiful. Ooh, check out this one, number five. From this point forward, every police officer in El Paso, Texas, will be forced to ask for the preferred pronouns of every person that they encounter. Unbelievable. The policy called constitutional policing was introduced in December 2023. However, it was not implemented until January 2024 and will require officers to ask every person they encounter, how would you like to be referred to? The gender-inclusive policy was created with the help of the Borderline Rainbow Center, an LGBTQ community center in El El Paso, Texas, and exists so all that LGBTQ people of their and their allies can heal, grow, and empower themselves and others. Unbelievable. So you're chasing down a criminal. <laughs> you got to ask them, what's your pronouns before I shoot you? Unreal. Uh, number six, a group of migrants that was caught on camera physically attacking cops in Times Square were shockingly released without even having to post bail. Uh, this is a big story. We all know it. We've all seen it a hundred times, uh, the video of these people kicking police officers. Alvin Bragg, the DA, let them all out the same day, no bail, and they took off. They've apprehended one of them. Now, on a Thursday, Alvin Bragg and uh, Mayor Adams did a press conference to say that a grand jury now has charged them with felonies. Well, what good does that do when you only have one of them in custody? If you didn't let them out in the first place, they wouldn't have uh, uh, fled. I bet you those other, the other six or whatever is missing... I bet you they're in Mexico by now. Uh, What else does he have in his article here? Uh, A group of pro-life activists in Tennessee face 11 years in prison for praying and singing outside an abortion clinic. Nearly three years ago, several pro-life activists held the prayer rally at a Tennessee abortion clinic. The Christian protesters prayed and sang hymns. They were sitting peacefully in the lobby of the abortion center. Uh, And they now face 11 years in prison. Uh, unbelievable. The 24-year-old aide to U.S. Senator Ben Cardin that was filmed having gay sex in a Senate hearing room will not be charged with breaking any laws. We all heard that story, too. Uh, Violent carjackers are fiercely roaming the streets of Washington, D.C., and anyone that resists one of those young carjackers can end up dead. Sadly, that is precisely what just happened to an official that worked in the Trump administration. Former Trump administration official Mike Gill has died after being shot in front of his life, in front of his wife, during a carjacking in Washington D.C. Why anybody would want to go and uh, visit any of these Democrat-run hellholes uh, like New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit, Washington? We can go on and on. Number ten: the Chinese and other foreign buyers are purchasing millions of acres of U.S. farmland. But nobody knows exactly how much farmland they now own, and very few of our politicians are interested in stopping the practice. America is seeing more and more of its fertile land snapped up by China and other foreign buyers. Your problems with how the U.S. tracks such data means it's difficult to know how 
much, according to the report. Uh, it's estimated uh, ownership and investment in property, such as farmland, pastures, and forest, jumped to about 40 million acres in 2021, up 40% from 2016. Why would we allow China or any other foreign countries to buy up our land? It's the same as conquering it, isn't it? Number 11, so many radical Muslims have moved into Dearborn, Michigan, that the Wall Street Journal is referring it to as uh, America's jihad capital. Uh, that's what they're doing. They're coming through the southern border. They're making their way to, to areas of the country where they congregate. Uh, then they send people to Congress uh, that are radical Muslims and haters of America. It's unbelievable. Keep saying that a lot. A uh, teacher in Massachusetts that has spotless record for 23 years was fired after she revealed the truth about what was really going on in her school. Bonnie Manchester had a spotless record in 23 years as a teacher at Baird Middle School. She laid it all on the line when she saw what was now happening to vulnerable children. Donnie Manchester is a Christian middle school teacher who was fired from her job in 2021. What was her crime? Informing a father and mother that school officials were referring to their daughter as a boy and keeping it secret from them. Uh, unbelievable. That's just 12 things that are happening in our country right now. It's just a taste of what's happening. And unfortunately, things are going to get worse. I mean, look, as a society, we're the most divided we've been, probably in modern times. Uh, probably have to go back to the Civil War. And with each passing day, more and more foreigners are coming into the country illegally. And they're making their way to U.S. cities that are already ripe with drug abuse and crime, homelessness. And that's just making it worse. And, of course, the election of this year is going to be the most divisive election that any of us have ever seen. And it's going to lead to civil unrest, no matter who wins. Especially if Donald Trump wins. You think the riots, uh, George Floyd riots were bad. Wait till you see what happens there. The economy is rapidly uh, deteriorating. Um, uh, global events, let's talk about that. I mean, they're deteriorating by the day. So we're, we're in a very crazy time. In American history and world history, um, and the rest of this year is going to be a doozy. All right, this was not a good week for Joe Biden and his uh, re-election chances, uh, or even his chances of getting the nomination. Uh, the special counsel uh, investigating him for the classified documents came out and said he carelessly handled classified materials. Uh, they found them boxes in his home. Did you see these pictures in his garage of, of these boxes? They're all ripped up. Didn't look like a presidential garage to me. What a mess. And these boxes of, of supposedly classified documents just laying around. And, uh, but they decided uh, that they would not charge him. Uh, unlike uh, Donald Trump, whose uh, records were kept in a secure location that's guarded by the Secret Service. Trump was president. He had a right to declassify everything. Biden did not. Biden had documents going back to his Senate days that he, that he stole from the skiff. But that's okay. No chargeable crime was committed as far as uh, the Department of Justice is concerned. But the damning thing in the report is about Joe Biden's mental health. 
uh, it was revealed that during a, a lengthy interview with him, a deposition, I guess it was, uh, he couldn't even remember softball questions like when he was vice president or when uh, his son Bo died of brain cancer, who Biden usually says died in Iraq. Uh, that was damning for him to say that. Um, he, uh, in his interview in our office, but Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. If it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? He still thought he was vice president. And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began in 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember even within several years when his son Bo died. And his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eichenberg when, in fact, Eichenberg was an ally who Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. Another really damning thing in here is, and the reason why they said, one of the reasons why they didn't charge him, uh, in the report it said, if, Biden, if brought to trial, Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, so this comes out in the afternoon on Thursday, uh, and it was damning. Forget him not being charged. You know, I don't even care what it wasn't charged. I think the charges on Trump should be dropped now because you should have some kind of equal justice system. But, uh, I mean... For the first time, I, I, I kind of feel bad for Biden, that he's being used, he's being abused. You want to talk about elder abuse? And his wife, Jill, I mean, she should be ashamed of herself. She should be ashamed of herself for having him run in the first place in 2020, knowing who knows better than she does about what his mental health situation is. But she allows him to go out there on the world stage, be mocked, and embarrass himself every day. It's outrageous that she would allow a husband to do that. But everybody else has been using him, too. And we know he's not running the country. He's a puppet. So uh, after this news came out, uh, the White House was rocked by it. Uh, you know, people are now calling for him to step down, uh, resign from the presidency, certainly uh, drop out of the race. Uh, and they had to rush a press conference, as we all saw uh, later that evening. Now, my friends were calling me up and saying, oh, this is history we're going to see here. He's going to resign. He's going to drop out of the race. I said, no, he's not. I said, he's going to come out. He's going to defend himself. He's going to be uh, angry. He's going to uh, uh, blame other people. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Now, usually when he goes out to a press conference, he has to call certain people. Uh, but this time he didn't have that. I don't think he had the cards to who he had to call. And he certainly didn't have the answers or, or the questions that they were going to ask him. So when he came out, the first question was asked rapidly by um, Peter Ducey from Fox News. Uh, and he's not afraid to answer, ask the, the pointed questions. So this is what he asked them. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. 
can How totally bad is your memory and can you continue as president my memory is so bad i let you speak that's uh, that's that's my memory has gotten worse mr no, president my memory is not good my memory is fine well that's a first uh, i don't recall ever hearing the president of the united states defending himself defending his mental health uh, this is not a joke anymore this is serious stuff people i mean we have a president the leader of the free world, who is demented, who has memory issues, who's an elderly man with a poor memory. How can you negotiate with world leaders? How can you make decisions regarding life and death? How do you make a decision if something really bad is happening and he has to make a decision really quick? This is serious stuff. I mean, you should resign today. But then we're left with... Uh, Kamala Harris, which would be a disaster in itself. But uh, this is damning stuff. Then he was asked about um, uh, his ghostwriter. Apparently, he was in a situation room with his ghostwriter reading to him from a classified document. Now, once this investigation into these documents um, was launched by the special counsel, uh, this ghostwriter erased all the audio tapes. Isn't that something called uh, obstruction, obstruction of justice? I, I think it is. But uh, he's a Democrat, I'm sure, so uh, no consequences for that. So uh, he was asked about uh, reading or giving classified information to his ghostwriter uh, by one of these reporters. And boy, uh, he got angry and vehemently denied it. Not share classified information. I did not share it. With your ghostwriter? With my ghostwriter. I did not. Guarantee you did not. But what the special the, counsel said well, it. No, he did, did not say that. Okay. okay. He did not say that. But Mr. President, what let, let me okay, answer your question. The fact of the matter is what I didn't want repeated, I didn't want him to know, and I didn't read it to him, was I had written a long memorandum to President Obama why we should not be in, this, in Afghanistan. And I was of multiple pages. And so what I was referring to, I said classified, I should have said it was, should be private because it was a contact between the president and the vice president as to what was going on. That's what he's referring to. It was not classified information in that document. I think I'll believe the special prosecutor who investigated this over, over him. And then he tried to set, in his speech, he tried to set himself apart from uh, President Trump. Uh, who faces 40 criminal charges and up to 450 years in prison for resisting handing over documents after leaving the White House. Uh, this is what Biden had to say. It was in my house. It wasn't out like in Mar-a-Lago in a public place. And none of it was highly ca- high classified. What do you mean? It's, it's safer in your house, in your garage next to your Corvette than in Mar-a-Lago with Secret Service all around? Uh I don't think that's a a very good distinction. I would say the documents in his garage next to his Corvette uh, were more at risk. Not to mention he shouldn't have them in the first place. Trump was president at the time when he left office. Joe Biden was vice president. He had no right to declassify anything. Uh, So uh, the one not facing charges should be Trump and Biden should be the one facing myriad of charges. But look, this guy couldn't stand trial. This guy couldn't go to jail. I mean, like, you know, he's an elderly man with dementia. Uh, 
and I, I'm for, I'm 100% behind that. I, I don't want to see the guy go to jail or, or to be uh, put on trial. You know, it's over for him. He should go home. Uh, his wife should make him uh, popcorn, give him some ice cream, put on the cartoons, and then tuck him into bed, which is probably what she's doing now. Then after defending himself in his memory, <laughs> he forgets uh, the name uh, that the president, Sisi, is the president of Egypt and calls him the president of Mexico. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. So this press conference uh, was a disaster. Uh, probably the worst presidential press conferences ever. Um, and it, it, it just spells the end of the Biden presidency. Whether he makes it till January 20th of next year is anybody's guess. But let me tell you, we're vulnerable. The world sees this. The world's laughing at us. They know how rudderless this country is right now. At least it's not being run by this president. Who's running it? No, that's a, another story. Now, of course, uh, the liberal uh, media uh, is freaking out over this, but they're trying to run cover for him. And the panel at MSNBC, I, I love to turn on CNN or MSNBC after something like this and see how they try to spin it. So they're trying to make excuses for him forgetting things that everybody does it. It's really quite funny. Well, yeah, especially this line uh, that the president quoted where the report refers to him as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Uh, what is the word elderly doing there? Uh, and poor memory, what is the test of that? Might that be Donald Trump saying, I don't recall 400 times under oath in the same deposition? Is that a good test of it? Um, the, the idea that witnesses over a 40-year discussion, 40-year discussion, don't remember everything, or that someone who graduates from college in June can't tell you where the diploma is in September. Uh, that seems to be a condition that that this uh, special prosecutor doesn't understand in the human mind. Uh, so I, I'm going to be fascinated when I can get into uh, all these hundreds of pages to see what is it that makes you stress the lack of memory in this particular case uh, where you have this completely cooperative uh, witness and there has never been a witness under oath anywhere being questioned over a period of years of that witness's life where they don't say, I do not recall. It is impossible to ask witnesses questions where they answer, will not be, I don't recall. And if you don't get that response, it just means you didn't ask, ask enough questions. So he's trying to say that, uh, oh, we all forget. Uh, in depositions, we always say we don't recall. Well, you say that when you're trying to cover up something. When asked when you were vice president, what years, and you don't know, uh, you don't recall. There's no reason for you to say that. Uh, and he still thought he was vice president. And when you're asked uh, the year your son died and you don't remember the year, within years, a few years, uh, when your son died, that's not the same thing. But they're trying to find it out for him. And, uh, and, 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 and it goes on and on. It gets worse. Can I speak just on that? Because I had the same thought. It's fairly standard lawyering to advise people, even when in doubt or you think you might remember. If you can credibly say, I don't recall about something, that's a standard legal advice. And it has nothing to do with the age 
of the person giving the deposition. When you're under oath, you can't lie. If you do recall, you have to say that you can, but if you can't... Exactly. Well, that, that's the whole point, right, Rachel? That basically, because of those standards, uh, the extra burden that you don't want to get anything wrong means yes. you err on the side of saying, I don't recall, I don't remember, unless you really specifically do. And if, you, if there's a, a thing that might seem minor and you're not sure and you're being asked a very specific aspect of it, like, was it in the morning, that meeting, or was it in the afternoon? And you had that meeting that day and you even refreshed your notes. You know, I don't recall what part, time of day. And it's, oh, my gosh, you're, you're 25 and you can't tell the morning and, and night apart? I, I will tell you this because we're going to get to all of it. But uh, the president came out and spoke tonight because, on the one hand, he has very good news. Uh, this exhaustive investigation led by a Trump-era holdover prosecutor cleared him of the wrongdoing on classified documents. No charges. Cleared him. No charges. End of story. Case closed. Good news. But he has a political piece of bad news woven in there, which is what seems like cheap shot derogatory attacks on him, um, which I wouldn't call normal course of investigatory material. No. And so maybe Mr. Herr would be better suited going for a job as White House physician. <laughs> but, but he'd have to go and get a, a medical degree, too, because legally... There's no interest or relevance to his views of the, the president's overall memory. If it's very specifically to the mental criminal intent or mens rea, and you say you could have this criminal intent and you didn't remember this, you didn't mean to do it, sure. But, but talking about um, how, for example, the president remembers or discusses his son's death and, and Mr. Herder and his team's apparent view that that tells you something. Um, the, as soon as I saw that today, I thought, wow, that's a real partisan kind of tell in a report. That has a good news legal headline. And, and the president just showing absolute rage um, at that point yes. tonight. There, there was one adverb in particular that has sort of that struck me, which is painfully, which the author of this report, presumably Mr. Herr himself, uses. The president was his his memory was painfully bad, or it was his, some of the the tapes they heard were painfully slow. The discussion painfully, was painfully slow, slow. That's right, painfully slow. And I just thought, well, who's in pain? Like what that that adverb is such a it's doing so much work yeah. editorially. You're in pain because it takes too long. Like, it's just very clear. It just contained in that adverb is this kind of like siren call that's leaping off the page about him understanding exactly how this is going to resonate. <laughs> too funny. How are these people even able to talk, giving Biden uh, a tongue bath at the same time? <laughs> Uh, excuses. The reason why he wasn't charged is because he's a senile old man who can't stand trial. Uh, because he is an elderly man, sympathetic, with a very poor memory, and he wouldn't make it through a trial. And if he was convicted, he wouldn't make it through uh, jail time. That's the reason why. Um, could you imagine if this was Trump? Could you imagine what these same people would be saying um, years years ago, let alone now? Uh, it's just such a double standard. You got to laugh about it because you can tell that they're stretching. For anything. Uh, and CNN wasn't any better. Uh, let's switch channels and go over to CNBC, uh, CNN and see what they're doing. And, and, but, John, I, I will just follow with you on this. Is One of the, the things that seems to be challenging is some of the things that people are now putting on him as age are things that may have been exacerbated by age, but it's also how he is, right? He's very open about how he has struggled in life, right, with a stutter. He is, you know, he's someone who often has gone down verbal cul-de-sacs and, and, and meandered into another story. That's part of who he is. That's his brand for the past 50 years. Right now, people see some of those things in a different light. How is he supposed to overcome that when that's actually kind of who he is? I, I think the reason he, the way he has overcome it for 40 plus years is to let people see, it, see a lot of it. 
see a lot of it. So you realize some of it just is baked in, as you said. Yeah. Uh, the stutter, God bless him. I mean, the man deserves a lot of credit for fighting through that in a very public way with yes. a camera aimed at him every second of every day. <laughs> Give me a break. Oh, let's talk about his stutter. Oh, he's Joe's been like that for 50 years. He has had dementia since uh, he, he was 35. Uh, you got to laugh uh, at these people. Aaron Burnett, I never heard that term before. Verbal cul-de-sac. He, went, he goes down verbal cul-de-sacs. That's a, that's a good one. But in all honesty, this is a sad situation that we're in now. And uh, I don't know what the future holds. Is he going to resign? Is he going to drop off the ticket? Who's going to replace him? Uh, I don't think this country's ever been through something like this. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. And we'll bring all the good stuff to you here on The Financial Physician. All right, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, they had oral arguments regarding uh, Trump being on or off the Colorado ballot. Uh, very interesting um, Supreme Court hearing. We're going to play some of that for you. We're going to also play some of the the Putin interview, uh, Car- uh, Tucker Carlson. Two-hour interview with Vladimir Putin. It was very, very illuminating. I'll play some of that and much more. Don't go away. AFM Investments' Luz Katigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, market trade you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. Hey, it's that time again, income tax season. There has been many changes to tax rules the last few years. Some deductions have been eliminated and some have been expanded. Avoid IRS headaches by putting my 35 years tax preparation experience to work for you. I guarantee that your return will be accurate and in most cases will be prepared and ready for you in less than three business days. This season, I'm taking on a limited number of new tax clients. Call for an appointment today and receive a $100 discount off our already reasonable fee. Tax season does not have to be stressful anymore. Call and lock up your appointment at our downtown Tom's River office by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Welcome back to the Financial Physician Podcast. Lou Skatigna here. We get together once a week for our two-hour program. We upload the show 7 a.m. Sunday mornings, and many of you do listen on Sunday. We have a really uh, big audience Sunday morning, and that's, I guess, because for many of you, uh, the Financial Physician has been a Sunday morning tradition. Uh, We were on um, Sunday mornings on WOBM for 24 years, and uh, that's why I uploaded at 7 a.m. 
on Sundays just to keep that tradition alive. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing the podcast with friends and family because we talk about things on this show uh, you're not going to get anywhere else. So the the border bill, the so-called quote-unquote bipartisan border bill, where McConnell and a few senators agreed to let at least 5,000 illegals in a day, uh, it was outrageous. Uh, and then Biden comes out and he gaslights the country. Uh, and this was his quote. The only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. I say uh, no. Uh, the reason the border is not secure is that Joe Biden reversed all the Trump policies that kept the border under control. And the, the president wants voters to blame Trump and the Republicans for opposing this what in effect is an amnesty bill. And no legislation would be needed if he just stuck to Trump's policies. So now the Republicans in the Senate are passing or passed a bill to bring $60 billion more to Ukraine uh, and Israel and uh, no border bill. Uh, and it's uh, Trump's fault. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, really. It's crazy. Right, a few months back, the Colorado Supreme Court voted four to three to keep Donald Trump off the ballot due to uh, the fact that he is an insurrectionist and using an obscure 14th Amendment uh, to the Constitution that had to do with civil war and Confederates holding office, real insurrectionists. Um, they tried to use that, uh, that amendment, that law, to equate Trump with an insurrectionist. Um, so taking him off the ballot, uh, he can't run for president in Colorado. Obviously, this is a big problem. Trump took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, this past Thursday, uh, they met, and uh, they, uh, the audio version of it was available to the public, which is a, a rarity. And it was interesting to see the workings of the court, how it works, the back and forth with uh, the attorneys and so forth. And sometimes it was humorous. Um, but you could tell by the questions and the comments that the justices made uh, that they're going to overturn this. And uh, I'm going to play some of the, the questions that these uh, justices asked uh, both sides, the lawyers. And uh, what was interesting here is even the liberal justices uh, were pretty skeptical uh, about the reasoning uh, for him be to be off the ballot. Now, he's talking to the attorney for the state of Colorado. Some of the rhetoric of your position seems to suggest unless the states can do this, no one can prevent insurrectionists from holding federal office. But obviously, Congress has enacted statutes, uh, including one still in effect, Section 2383 of Title 18 prohibits insurrection. It's a federal criminal statute. And if you're convicted of that, you are, it says, shall be disqualified from holding any office. And so there is a federal statute on the books, but um, President Trump has not been charged with that. So what, what are we to make of that? I'm not going to play the lawyer's response because it's legal mumbo-jumbo. And that's the thing. You're listening to this. A lot of this stuff goes right over your head because they're quoting cases from 1957 and, and so such and so forth using legal terms that none of us would really know unless we were a Supreme Court attorney. The next clip is um, Justice Elena Kagan, which is one of the liberal justices on the court. And I think she was uh, appointed by Obama. And listen to what she has to say. And it's a, it's a really good question. And she wants to know why one state could affect the entire nation. Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation. 
Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit, but if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides, and other courts, other states, if, if this court affirms the decision below, determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have on their own state's law and state procedure. Look, the bottom line here is they're saying that the reason why Trump's off the ballot is because of committing insurrection. Now, Trump has never been accused of insurrection, at least not in the legal system, nor has he been convicted of insurrection, at least as far as I know. So to me, that's the that's the only argument you really need to make here uh, is that you're basing on an insurrection and there is no conviction or charge of insurrection in the first place. And the most liberal justice on the, on the court, Katinja Brown, uh, she was also very sympathetic to the Trump side. I'm not going to play her clip. Uh, so it's pretty obvious for, uh, especially people with legal knowledge and how the Supreme Court works, all legal analysts were coming out and saying that there's no way that Trump's going to be off the ballot in Colorado or any other state. They're going to overturn this. The question is, do they overturn it nine to nothing? Which I hope they do. Um, but certainly it's going to be at least seven to two. It's obvious all the conservatives on uh, the court are going to vote uh, to turn this down, uh, overturn the Colorado Supreme Court. So um, this is good news for Trump because now it, no other states are going to try to do this because now there's precedent or there will be precedent once they rule. Uh, the question is, how long is the court going to take to deliberate on this? Uh, could be months. Um, but it's obvious from anybody with any legal knowledge that uh, the court's going to overturn Colorado. So if uh, other states are thinking about doing the same thing, uh, they're going to have to think twice. And think about it. I mean, if, if this was upheld, wouldn't Republican states start doing the same thing and take Biden off the ballot? What kind of chaos would we have at that point? So uh, th this is going to be overturned. There's no question in my mind. Now, Donald Trump uh, liked what he heard, and he came out uh, of Mar-a-Lago uh, to give a, a quick speech and uh, take a few questions. In watching the Supreme Court today, I thought it was very, it's a very beautiful process. I hope that democracy in this country will continue. Uh, because right now we have a very, very tough situation with all of the radical left ideas with the weaponization of uh, politics. They weaponized it like it's never been weaponized. Our favorite president loves to use the word beautiful. Everything's beautiful. It was a beautiful phone call. <laughs> the beautiful process in the Supreme Court. So uh, the Donald knows that uh, he'll be on the ballot in every state. Uh, and he's going to win, if not all of them, many of them, especially if Biden's on the Ticket, which he won't be. Uh, but I don't know who this is going to replace him that's going to be Trump. Uh, two names being bandied about are Michelle Obama and uh, Gavin Newsom. Uh, I don't think either of them are going to beat Donald Trump. Uh, the country is just such a mess right now. People have had it with left-wing politics, left-wing policies. Uh, they know that the world is burning and we need a strong leader. Uh, Michelle Obama is not going to be it, nor is Gavin Newsom. We don't need the Californication 
of America. Uh, everybody's leaving California to get out of there. They better leave the United States and go to Canada to get away from Newsom and his policies. Um, so it would be interesting to see what happens. Uh, if I had to guess, I was telling my wife Sue this morning, I would say I think uh, Biden may announce that he's out of the race within the next two weeks. Because every week is precious now, given an election year, from fundraising to campaigning. Uh, and uh, they can't do this in August. I guess they can at the convention, but it, it wouldn't make sense. Now, the question is, Biden has to agree to step down. And I don't think, doesn't look like he wants to, does it? He doesn't know how unpopular he is because nobody will tell him or he doesn't remember. He's arrogant and uh, he's not going to have somebody tell him that he can't run. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how this transpires in the next few weeks, because, you know, once once the press starts throwing him, the mainstream media starts throwing him under the bus, it'll be pretty much over for him. Uh, but uh, but he uh, he is uh, on life support right now. All right. And uh what could only be regarded as a journalistic coup. Uh, Tucker Carlson uh, interviewed Vladimir Putin in uh, Moscow this week. Uh, it was a two-hour interview, um, and it was very telling. And uh, it's the first interview since the Ukrainian war. Now, why wouldn't a Western journalist interview him, find out what's going on in his mind? Wouldn't we want to know what our supposed enemy is thinking? Uh, I, I do. And of course, he's being vilified by the left and the mainstream media because, A, they didn't do their job. And uh, B, they say he's um, given uh, the world stage to Putin. And basically, you're a Putin puppet. Uh, you're helping him to propagandize the world. But I'm going to play uh, parts of the conversation he had with him. Some of it was actually kind of funny. Uh, and it's through an interpreter, of course. Uh, and uh, Tucker asked him some some pointed questions. The first thing I want to bring up is uh, the dollar. Uh, he brings up how the United States is shooting itself in the foot or shooting itself in the dollar by weaponizing it. You know, to use the dollar as a tool of foreign policy struggle is one of the biggest strategic mistakes made by the U.S. political leadership. The dollar is the cornerstone of the United States power. I think everyone understands very well that no matter how many dollars are printed, they are quickly dispersed all over the world. Inflation in the United States is minimal. It's about 3 or 3.4 percent, which is, I think, totally acceptable for the U.S. But they won't stop printing. What does the debt of $33 trillion tell us about? It is about the emission. Nevertheless, it is the main weapon used by the United States to preserve its power across the world. As soon as the political leadership decided to use the U.S. dollar as a tool of political struggle, a blow was dealt to this American power. I would not like to use any strong language, but 
It is a stupid thing to do and a grave mistake. Look at what is going on in the world. Even the United States allies are now downsizing their dollar reserves. Seeing this, everyone starts looking for ways to protect themselves. But the fact that the United States applies restrictive measures to certain countries, such as placing restrictions on transactions, freezing assets, etc., causes great concern and sends a signal to the whole world. What did we have here? Until 2022, about 80% of Russian foreign trade transactions were made in US dollars and euros. US dollars accounted for approximately 50% of our transactions with third countries. While currently it is down to 13%. It wasn't us who banned the use of the US dollar. We had no such intention. It was decision of the United States to restrict our transactions in US dollars. I think it is complete foolishness from the point of view of the interests of the United States itself and its taxpayers, as it damages the US economy, undermines the power of the United States across the world. By the way, our transactions in Yuan accounted for about 3%. Today, 34% of our transactions are made in rubles and about as much, a little over 34% in yuan. Why did the United States do this? My only guess is self-conceit. They probably thought it would lead to full collapse, but nothing collapsed. Moreover, other countries, including oil producers, are thinking of and already accepting payments for oil in yuan. Do you even realize what is going on or not? Does anyone in the United States realize this? What are you doing? You are cutting yourself off. All experts say this. Ask any intelligent and thinking person in the United States what the dollar means for the US. You are killing it with your own hands. He's absolutely right. Uh, Mr. Putin knows a lot about U.S. economics, doesn't he? And where have you heard this? You've heard this on this program. I've been telling you about de-dollarization, why it's happening, how it was a mistake to weaponize the dollar. And here he is telling us, what are you, stupid? <laughs> You're only hurting yourself. Uh, and he's absolutely right. And I thought that was one, you know, from an economic standpoint, I thought that was a, uh, one of the most interesting parts of the interview. All right, now Tucker Carlson asks him about um, the Nord Stream pipeline. And does he think that the US CIA was involved? So he asked the question, you know, who do you think uh, bombed the, the pipeline? And, and Putin points at Tucker, uh, alluding to the fact that the United States did it. Uh, but Tucker's response was funny. Who blew up Nord Stream? <laughs> you for sure. I was busy that day. <laughs> Nate, it, do you have... Do you have <laughs> uh, I did not blow up Nord Stream. Uh, thank you, though. You personally may have an alibi, but the CIA has no such alibi. 
Do, do you have evidence that NATO or the CIA did it? You know, I won't get into details, but people always say in such cases, look for someone who is interested. But in this case, we should not only look for someone who is interested, but also for someone who has capabilities. Because there may be many people interested, but not all of them are capable of sinking to the bottom of the Baltic Sea and carrying out this explosion. These two components should be connected. Who is interested and who is capable of doing it? But I'm confused. I mean, that's the biggest act of industrial terrorism ever. And it's the largest emission of CO2 in, in history. Okay, so if you had evidence, and presumably given your security services, your intel services, you would, that NATO, the US, CIA, the West did this, why wouldn't you present it and win a propaganda victory? <laughs> In the war of propaganda, it is very difficult to defeat the United States because the United States controls all the world's media and many European media. The ultimate beneficiary of the biggest European media are American financial institutions. Don't you know that? So it is possible to get involved in this work but it is cost prohibitive, so to speak. We can simply shine the spotlight on our sources of information and we will not achieve results. It is clear to the whole world what happened and even American analysts talk about it directly. So he wouldn't quite come out and accuse the United States of doing it, um, but obviously he's implying uh, maybe the CIA was involved, the United States was involved, um, and uh, I, it's hard to believe that we weren't involved uh, in it, and I commented on it when it happened. Uh, but uh, he's on to it. He's sly to it. On the next segment, uh, Tucker talks about the end game, you know, peace talks, and, you know, why haven't they engaged in peace talks? And he made it quite a revelation. He was saying that peace talks were advanced, uh, until some entities in the West uh, squashed it. Will there be talks, and why haven't there been talks about resolving the conflict in Ukraine, peace talks? They have been. They reached a very high stage of coordination of positions in a complex process, but still they were almost finalized. But after we withdrew our troops from Kiev, as I have already said, the other side threw away all these agreements and obeyed the instructions of Western countries, European countries, and the United States to fight Russia to the bitter end. Moreover, the president of Ukraine has legislated a ban on negotiating with Russia. He signed a decree forbidding everyone to negotiate with Russia. But how are we going to negotiate if he forbade himself and everyone to do this? We know that he is putting forward some ideas about this settlement, but in order to agree on something, we need to have a dialogue. Is that not right? So we learned something here, um, that there was advanced uh, negotiations for an agreement to end the war in Ukraine, and uh, the Ukrainians and the West turned it down or walked away from it at the last minute. And I didn't know that Zelensky made a law that they can't negotiate with Russia to end the war. 
uh, and that's why it's so important uh, for the West to have an interview like this with Putin, uh, to know what he's thinking, to hear what their side of what's going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not pro-Russia, pro-Putin. Uh, I don't want to be accused of any of that. Some of you will. Uh, I just want information out there. Right? I, I, you remember how many times I said in this program, where's the peace talks? You, never, you don't hear anything about peace. All you hear is about more money for more weapons for more war. And uh, so, uh, and then he goes on to say that, look, you know, we, they're willing to negotiate. They're willing to have some kind of an agreement. And um, as the interview progresses here, it, it gets more interesting. Now he's asked by uh, Tucker Carlson, when's the last time he talked to Joe Biden? Well, but you wouldn't be speaking to the Ukrainian president. You'd be speaking to the American president. When was the last time you spoke to Joe Biden? I cannot remember when I talked to him. I do not remember. We can look it up. You don't remember? No. Why? Do I have to remember everything? I have my own things to do. We have domestic political affairs. Well, he's funding the war that you're fighting, so I would think that would be memorable. Well, yes, he funds, but I talked to him before the special military operation, of course. And I said to him then, by the way, I will not go into details, I never do, but I said to him then, I believe that you are making a huge mistake of historic proportions by supporting everything that is happening there in Ukraine by pushing Russia away. I told him, told him repeatedly, by the way. I think that would be correct if I stop here. What did he say? Ask him, please. It is easier for you. You are a citizen of the United States. Go and ask him. It is not appropriate for me to comment on our conversation. But, but, but you haven't spoken to him since before February of 2022. No, we haven't spoken. Certain contacts are being maintained, though. So you said a moment ago that the world would be a lot better if it weren't broken into competing alliances, if there was cooperation globally. One of the reasons you don't have that is because the current American administration is dead set against you. Do you think if there were a new administration after Joe Biden that you would be able to reestablish communication with the U.S. government? Now, he doesn't really answer the question. And obviously, Tucker Carlson is... uh implying that that Trump, if Trump is president, uh, is he going to have a better relationship than he has with Biden? I, I think it's just incredible that Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin haven't had a conversation since the beginning of the Ukrainian war. It just blows my mind that the leaders of these two countries wouldn't at least have a discussion. Uh, Trump burned the phones up all the time. And I think when he was president, he was talking to Putin a lot. And there wasn't a war going on. Um, so I find that to be interesting. But he doesn't answer the question. He changed the subject. Uh, he goes on to talk about the BRIC nations, which I'm going to play, play in a little bit. But let's get back to the dynamics of ending the war. And Tucker Carlson wants to know that will the West or NATO or, or Ukraine uh, suck up the humiliation of losing territory, you know, in eastern Ukraine uh, to get peace. Do you think it's too humiliating at this point for NATO to accept Russian control of what was two years ago Ukrainian territory? I, I, I just said 
I said, uh, let them think how to do it with dignity. There are options if there is a will. Up until now, there has been the uproar and screaming about inflicting a strategic defeat on Russia on the battlefield. Now they are apparently coming to realize that it is difficult to achieve, if possible at all. In my opinion, it is impossible by definition. It is never going to happen. It seems to me that now, those who are in power in the West have come to realize this as well. If so, if the realization has set in, they have to think what to do next. We are ready for this dialogue. Would you be willing to say, congratulations, NATO, you won, and just keep the situation where it is now? You know, it is a subject matter for the negotiations. No one is willing to conduct or, to put it more accurately, they are willing but do not know how to do it. I know they want to. It is not just I see it, but I know they do want it. But they are struggling to understand how to do it. They have driven the situation to the point where we are at. It is not us who have done that. It is our partners, opponents who have done that. Well, now let them think how to reverse the situation. We're not against it. It would be funny if it were not so sad. This endless mobilization in Ukraine, the hysteria, the domestic problems, sooner or later it will result in agreement. You know, this probably sounds strange given the current situation. But the relations between the two peoples will be rebuilt anyway. Why are the Ukrainian authorities dismantling the Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Because it brings together not only the territory, it brings together our souls. No one will be able to separate the soul. Wow, Vladimir getting all spiritual and stuff there. Uh, talking about the souls of the Russians and the Ukraines and the Russian Orthodox Church. Very interesting. Uh, he's a very, very well-spoken person. He thinks out what he's going to say. He's very measured um, in this interview. But we learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the mechanics of what's going on and how to get some kind of end to this. Uh, and I find it fascinating. I recommend uh, each one of you go to Twitter and uh, go to Tucker Carlson and, and watch the, the, the full two-hour interview. Uh, it is chock full of information. Obviously, I can't play most of it here. Um, but I want to play one more uh, segment. And this is a segment where he talks about the BRIC nations. Now, I've talked to you for a long time. God, it's two or three years about the BRICs. Uh, and the competitiveness against the United States and de-dollarization, which he, he, we, he talked about earlier uh, and how we're doing it to ourselves. But he goes on to say there's no stopping the BRICS nations right now. And uh, he explains how trade is growing between them and, and how the alliance has grown. We, together with my colleague and friend, President Xi Jinping, set a goal to reach $200 billion of mutual trade with China this year. We have exceeded this level. 
According to our figures, our bilateral trade with China totals already 230 billion, and the Chinese statistics says it is 240 billion dollars. One more important thing, our trade is well balanced, mutually complementary in high tech, energy, scientific research and development. It is very balanced. As for BRICS, where Russia took over the presidency this year, the BRICS countries are, by and large, developing very rapidly. Look, if memory serves me right, back in 1992, the share of the G7 countries in the world economy amounted to 47%, whereas in 2022, it was down to I think a little over 30%. The BRICS countries accounted for only 16% in 1992, but now their share is greater than that of the G7. It has nothing to do with the events in Ukraine. This is due to the trends of global development and world economy, as I mentioned just now. And this is inevitable. This will keep happening. It is like the rise of the sun. You cannot prevent the sun from rising. You have to adapt to it. How do the United States adapt? With the help of force, sanctions, pressure, bombings, and use of armed forces. This is about self-conceit. Your political establishment does not understand that the world is changing under objective circumstances. The R in BRICS stands for Russia. And now we have, what, 25 more countries want to come into the, the economic and what will be a military alliance, uh, which spells doom for the U.S. dollar, the U.S. economy. And ultimately, they'll have their own currency uh, and uh, the dollar will be toast. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the mainstream media uh, was very unhappy with Tucker uh, going over there and interviewing him. Uh, not only was it the mainstream media, it was the leftist Democrats, uh, the warmongers who want the war to continue to go on um, and don't want to hear any talk of peace. Uh, Hillary Clinton couldn't help herself. She had to get in the mix. Listen to what she had to say about Tucker. Tucker Carlson is in Moscow right now interviewing Vladimir Putin. Right. The first American, I'll say, journalist uh, to interview Putin since the war in Ukraine mm-hmm. began. What does that tell you? <laughs> about Tucker Carlson and right-wing media and also Vladimir Putin? Well, it shows me what I think we've all known. He's what's called a useful idiot. I mean, if you actually read translations of what's being said on Russian media, they make fun of him. I mean, he's like a puppy dog. You know, he somehow has, after having been fired from so many outlets in the United States, he, uh, I would not be surprised uh, if he emerges with a contract with a Russian outlet because he is a useful idiot. He says things that are not true. He parrots Vladimir Putin's uh, pack of lies about Ukraine. Uh, so I don't see why Putin wouldn't give him an interview. What a nasty bitch. <laughs> God, I can't stand that woman. I really can't. Um, she's horrible. Go away. She should be in jail for life. All right, earlier in the hour, we were talking about... Joe Biden and his uh, memory issues, uh, as evidenced by the special counsel's report and lack of uh, charges due to the fact that it, he's not competent to stay in trial. Well, if he's not competent to stay in trial, how is he competent to run the United States of America? 
Anyway, uh, he uh, misspoke, uh, and he called the uh, Egyptian president the Mexican president. Um, but that's not the only gaffe he had. Uh, he has gaffes every day. Um, in one week, he uh, stated that he uh, had talked recently with uh, two dead European presidents, Francois Mitterrand, who I think died in 93, uh, and Helmut Kohl, uh, who died about the same time. Uh, and uh, he said he had talked to them in uh, 2012 or something like that. So anyway, so uh, in the daily press briefing with Corinne Jean-Pierre, I finally got that name down. Um, uh, she shuts down Peter Ducey, who asks if Biden talks to dead people. And how is President Biden ever going to convince the three quarters of voters who are worried about his physical and mental health that he is okay, even though in Las Vegas he told a story about recently talking to a French president who died in 1996? I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole with you, what? sir. What is We're going to go. Hole? Go ahead. He said go he ahead. talked to Mitterrand. Go ahead. You saw the president in Vegas, in California. You've seen the president in South Carolina. You saw him in Mich- Michigan. I'll just leave it there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Peter Ducey, he sure has a way of getting under KJP's skin, huh? Uh, she's usually pretty civil with him when she's not evading his questions, but she was going to have none of that. She, there's no way to answer that question. Basically, you know, how, how do you answer when he's saying he's talking to people who've been dead for 30 years? Uh, she can't answer that. I don't envy her, her job. I really don't, especially in the weeks and months to come. Uh, it's a tough job. Uh, I don't know if she's going to last. Uh, she's out of her league. She always has been. Uh, but Ducey, it was a Ducey of a question for her. Stephen A. Smith is uh, he's a commenter on ESPN. He's a liberal black man, and he went on a rant this week about Biden and Democrats doling out cash to other countries and illegal immigrants to the United States, and he predicted that Trump is going to win in the process. And he's not alone uh, on the Democratic side and on the African-American side. So you can pick and choose. What it came down to for me is this. I see Homeless folks in the streets of New York all the time that are American citizens. I damn sure see them in California. We've got poor, impoverished, starving people who were born and raised in this nation. How in the hell do we come up with a $53 million pilot program for illegals, but folks who are here legally are born here, we don't have enough of them. Just like we could come up with billions for Ukraine. But somehow, some way, we can't fix the homeless problem. I'm down for helping Israel. I'm down for helping address the situations with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, okay? I'm down for helping the Ukrainians and fighting off Russia. What about poor and desolate citizens here? How the hell do you print money for foreign countries? But you don't print that money to help eradicate Folks that are starving right here in the streets of America who were born and raised here. This is what I'm talking about. And so when you have something like that, what's the one way to eradicate it? Yes, you got to have a flourishing economy. Yes, you can't have inflation. Yes, you can't be on the verge of a recession. Milk don't need to cost $7. Bread don't need to cost $5. Don't get me started with how much sugar costs. You can talk about employment all you want to. You can talk about the labor participation rate. But guess what? 
If you ain't making no damn money and you got to get two jobs to pay the same prices or to buy the same amount of stuff that you used to buy and the price is higher than it used to be because of inflation, then guess what? What are you really accomplishing? That's why Trump is on the verge of getting elected, reelected. Because when he was in office, there was a flourishing economy. Again, Stephen A. Smith is not a MAGA Republican. Uh, he's a liberal, but he understands that liberal policies are destroying this country, especially black Americans. Now, he's not the only African-American who's out there uh, saying that Trump is going to win and Trump's better for the country. Uh the vice president of the Black Conservative Federation, I think that's what it is, uh, was walking around the streets, I think it was Chicago in the inner city, and he's stopping black people and he's asking them, who are you for for president? Warning, there is some mild profanity uh, in this clip. It is the streets of Chicago, by the way. Trump. Trump. I said Trump. Are you with Trump? Yes. Why is that? <laughs> What's going on, everyone? It's Quentin Jordan. Vice President of the Black Conservative Federation. And today we're out doing what we do best and that's being in the communities, meeting people where they're at. And today we want to ask people a few important questions about the upcoming election. Let's do it. Who do you think is better for the country, Trump or Biden? Trump. Trump is better for the country. Biden ain't doing shit. We're going to get rid of his sleepy ass. Trump or Biden? Trump. Why do you say that? The businessman. He's going to think biz. And Biden is a racist. Trump did it all. Trump, Trump 2024. Who do you think has done more for the black community, Trump or Biden? I ain't even see Biden yet. I know Trump was out there. He was out there, oh bro, he was out there. He slid for us, oh God. That's why he built a high-ass wall. Michael came over here and everything. And, you know, we've been here for all this time and can't get a free hamburger. And they come here and get all this shit, you know what I'm saying? So that's why I say, yeah, Biden, he ain't doing shit, he ain't shit. So, but uh, Trump, I would feel that he will be the better person to get in. I say uh, Trump. Who do you think has done more for the black community, Trump or Biden? Trump. No wars. Great um, great policies. Best years in the stock market. Trump. But Biden, his whole ass, he just crunched over all. On a recent poll, uh, Trump polled the highest of any Republican presidential candidate with the African-American community, with the blacks. They know the Democrats have just been holding them back all these years. And now they see that these illegals coming in and getting all kinds of free stuff. Uh, well, they're struggling to get by. Uh, and this does not bode well for the Democratic Party in the 2024 presidential race. All right, that's the end of our program. I didn't get to everything I had for you today. There was so much to talk about. And we went in depth with the Putin interview, with the Biden situation. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show we were going to cover um, the um, surveillance that we're all under now. I didn't get to that. That's uh, probably a 15, 20-minute segment. I'm going to do it next week. I also didn't get to uh, retailers closing in the, in the big cities due to crime. We'll have to do that next week. So much to talk about here on The Financial Physician. Thanks so much for joining us each and every week. Thanks for sharing the program now more than ever. Get it out to as many people as you can. You want to see our, our, our financial topic videos, go to thefinancialphysician.com, go to the blog, or go to Rumble and look up the Financial Physician channel. If you listen to this on Sunday, enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday, but it's always Super Sunday here because you get to listen to a fresh edition of The Financial Physician. And if you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email, lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. 
Realtorsmarket.com. You want to set up a no-obligation financial review and consultation with me or make an appointment for income tax preparation, just call my office at 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Have a wonderful week. And don't you ever forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far.